It's time to set aside the superficial. It's time to go deeper. It's time to engage in truth. Here's John Bornchain. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome back to Engage in Truth. This is John Bornchain. I'm the senior pastor of Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley Church right here in Colorado Springs, and I am thrilled that you are tuning in. We are continuing in our study of the book of 1 Corinthians. Last week, we deviated a little bit to be able to have a very special conversation with a couple of our guests. It was a wonderful time to dialogue about the heart of worship, and if you didn't have a chance to hear that program, I'd certainly encourage you to go listen to it at Engage in Truth's website at Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley Church, which is calvaryfountain.com, calvaryfountain.com. So when you go there, we have a number of broadcasts available to you there. In fact, I think the archive is something like 20 or 30 programs. Uh, You can go back, listen to those at your leisure, as well as download and view uh, the teachings from each week as we have uh, Sunday messages that right now we're in the book of Matthew. And so if you'd like to pick up that study as we go through here on the radio together from 1 Corinthians, uh, you can get a a double set of of teaching there. So it's a a wonderful opportunity if you are teaching a small group somewhere, if you have a an opportunity to lead a Bible study, we can provide you with notes so that you can be equipped as the saints, the, the, the church, the body of Christ to do what God has called you to do. So we want to come alongside you in that way. So again, reach out to us at calvaryfountain.com. So here we are, we're picking up back in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, This is a ministry of Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley Church, and we are going through the Bible verse by verse. And the last uh, previous series of, uh, of our Engage in Truth broadcast. We were covering spiritual gifts. We really highlighted for you uh, what has been communicated through the Apostle Paul to us of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 1 to 11, highlighting several spiritual gifts. And this is not an all-encompassing list, but rather to give us an idea of how the Holy Spirit equips God's people to do the work that he has pre-appointed for us to do. Now, in this particular study, that it's going to take us a couple weeks, at least two, three weeks into this, we're now going to be talking about the body of Christ. So here we've been really focusing on the resources available to us through the Holy Spirit. And now we want to shift gears and examine the fact that we are the body of Christ. And as we understand that, this will set us up for a very detailed discussion as we get through 1 Corinthians 13 and 14, re-examining even closer some of the spiritual gifts, such as tongues, which, as we know, is very divisive in churches and that subject today. And so we really want to give that the attention that it deserves. So here, let's uh, let's examine verses 12 to 31. Again, it's probably going to take us a couple weeks to do that. But as we look now to the body of Christ, uh, let me just start off with this. I don't know if any of you perhaps can remember uh, maybe maybe you had some buddies. I know I was uh, deeply involved in a number of athletic programs in junior high school. Now, they call it middle school today. It was called junior high school when I was in school. And I remember that in junior high school and into high school, I got a, really involved with a group of guys who, they were always challenging me. We were playing football together, uh, many of the sports, uh, baseball, wrestling, a number of sports. And so it was, it was good to be uh, challenged. I mean, they set the bar really high for me because they were constantly trying to tune their bodies to be able to do uh, the 
the, the sports that they wanted to do, but not just perform in those sports, but to be able to perform well. I mean, they wanted to take it up to another notch. So they really got into bodybuilding. Now, and of course, mind you, that their particular age and, uh, you know, obviously they weren't giving it the attention that you would think of bodybuilders today, but they really wanted to take uh, bodybuilding to another level. And, if, and, and it, you know, obviously, you know, as you're working out with these kind of guys, you start to do a little more research on these sort of things. And I started to examine then professional bodybuilders. These are some interesting creatures, okay? Uh, they're incredibly disciplined and do almost anything to win a competition. I mean, both legal and illegal to win at bodybuilding. And due to the competitive nature of bodybuilding, in order to win a competition, you can't have a single weak part of the body. I mean, if your calves aren't bulging like diamonds... Uh, you're probably not going to win a competition. I mean, if your lats are not flaring like a king cobra, you might as well just hang it up. If your biceps don't peak like the Himalayas, well, it just uh, go ahead and quit, right? I mean, this is what it feels like, that that level of competition. And with all of these uh, uniquenesses, bodybuilders seem to understand the value and significance of every single part of the body. There, there can't be a single lagging piece of the body. Nothing can be undeveloped. Okay, so every single body part must develop and function at its absolute best. Now, that being said, did you know that God is also interested in bodybuilding? Okay, now before you turn off the radio, let me help you understand. His idea of bodybuilding is very different than ours. Not what the culture elevates, not the images on the posters. No, his bodybuilding is very different. God wants to build every muscle in the church. Now, he doesn't want there to be any superior or inferior body parts. God expects every part of the body to grow and do its work. So what Paul is going to do, he's going to discuss here with us in, in 1 Corinthians 12, the importance of church teamwork, that the body works together. It's not to look down on one particular piece of the body and elevate another piece of the body. That's not how this works. I mean, that people become Christians on an individual basis, but, but once they're a Christian, the focus is always on the health, unity, and well-being of the whole body through each one's contribution. So in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 31, Paul's going to inform us that everybody is somebody because we're in this together. So number one takeaway from this is that we're to appreciate the solidarity of the body. That's what he's going to highlight here in verses 12 to 13. So these first two verses give the theological basis, if you will, for the body imagery that's developing through the rest of this passage. Listen to this, verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 12. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. Now you're thinking, wait a minute, what did you just say there? Okay, it is a bit of a tongue twister, but it demonstrates that there are many parts to the body as there are many parts in the church. And what is the church? It's the body of Christ. So each part forms a whole body when joined together. 
for example, let me give you an example you might be able to relate with here. There are 37.2 trillion cells in the human body. 37.2 trillion cells in the human body. Now, each separate cell is not the body. But together, they form a working organic machine that's capable of doing far more than the individual cell could do on its own. So the term body is introduced here in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 12. It's then repeatedly employed by Paul some 18 different times throughout the remainder of this chapter. So he really emphasizes the term body. So this body imagery is frequently used throughout his epistles. If you look to Romans chapter 12, Ephesians 1, chapter 2, 3, 4, and 5 of Ephesians, even Colossians 1 and 2. I mean, he frequently uses this imagery of being the body. So the word one occurs five times in just verses 12 to 13 of 1 Corinthians 12. So the emphasis is on the unity, the oneness Our body of many members is unified into one body. So so Paul is is really intent on this, on driving home this point of our oneness in the church, that he refers to Christ as the church. So this uh, it's interesting because this is one of the places in Scripture where all believers collectively are called Christ. I mean, you're you're an ambassador for Christ, after all, in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20. And on the road to Damascus, if you recall the story, Jesus Christ reaches out to Paul. He was called Saul at that time. And he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? In Acts chapter 9, verse 4. Well, Paul had been persecuting Christians, and he wasn't realizing that he was actually persecuting Christ And yet Christ introduces it as, why are you persecuting me? That means that every believer is a member of Christ's body. He says this in Romans chapter 12, verse 5. He says, so we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Now, I remember uh, the words of the late Chuck. Chuck Smith uh, from Calvary Chapel Movement. Uh, He said, we need to have that awareness that when we get to heaven— There's not going to be a section for the Methodists, another for the Presbyterians, another for the Baptists. But in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, barbarian or Scythian, bond or free, Baptist or Methodist, Presbyterian or Nazarene, or Church of God or Church of Christ, but they are all one in Him. And we can go to Colossians chapter 3 and Galatians 3 on that to be reminded of that. Now, we can all disagree on some issues such as tongues, which we're going to spend some great deal of time in that as we get to 1 Corinthians 14. But we need to ensure the main thing stays the main thing and not stray into false doctrine. Now, in verse 13, Paul is going to explain the reason for the oneness of this church. Let's read 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. For by one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and all have been made to drink into one spirit. So Paul is arguing here that every Christian has experienced baptism by one spirit. And if you notice the word all, as well as the past tense that is used here, were baptized, this passive indicative, it implies a finished work 
in a past time. So every believer shares in this experience. Now listen, if you belong to Christ, you have the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit seals you. And Jesus said he will not lose a single one who God gave to him. That means there isn't going to be an oops I forgot to mark that one moment, okay? Jesus said he wouldn't lose a single believer, according to John 6, 39 and John 18, 9. And God knows every believer before he made time itself, according to Romans 8, 29 to 30. So when we receive the Holy Spirit, it makes us a part of Christ's church, his body. We aren't talking brick and mortar here. We're talking about us, the body, this, this uh, uniqueness of how he describes, even in Ephesians 5, how he describes for us that the family structure is very similar to Christ as the headship over the body, i.e. the church. I mean, we almost need our own program called This Is Us, not from the secular version, but one of the Christian version, right? That, that we're all the body of Christ working together to the glory of the Lord, our headship of Jesus Christ. So if you belong to Jesus Christ, you are joined with others who also belong to Jesus Christ because we're all of the same Holy Spirit. That means it's it's not a matter of having a certain level of spiritual maturity or achieving some advanced spiritual state or even receiving a second blessing, but rather, on the contrary here, every believer becomes unified through the Holy Spirit regardless of his or her race or social status. So we are now on equal footing in the sense that we are all members of the body of Christ. You have more value than you could ever imagine. Every time you look in that mirror and you feel that you have no value, that you're not contributing to the kingdom, that, that you just have been forgotten or sidelined in some way, this is a lie from the enemy. You are part of of the body of Christ. We elevate certain individuals who have a, a platform in front of us at a podium on Sunday, perhaps, or or even those who speak on radio or, or via some video format. That, that is not the right way to evaluate the body of Christ. We are not spectators in God's sport, okay? We are all part of the body of Christ and are equipped by the Holy Spirit to do the work that he has set before us. So, here in this section, we see that we have been called through this baptism of the Holy Spirit. And biblically, what that refers to is to trusting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and receiving the Holy Spirit. But it's used today often as some sort of empowering, yielding, or some post-conversion experience in the lives of believers that's used in various neo-Pentecostal groups to suggest that you can be saved without having received the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes into a person's life, it's, it's evidenced by this gift of speaking in tongues. And that's not really a biblical model that we can drive from this. I mean, we, we need to be very careful in this. I, I would encourage you to avoid modern variations of sensationalized worship that can be harmful as you seek solid footing in uncertain times. Okay, religious groups, whether intentional or not, tend to create a litmus test, if you will, of, of certain practices to determine if you're eligible for salvation or not. But the Bible is clear. Listen to this, Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's a promise. 
This was true of the criminal on the cross, as we read in Luke 23, 39-43. And we read here, Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you were under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What did we just read when we were in 1 Corinthians 12, 3? No one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. This criminal had just called Jesus Lord. And there was no water baptism, no communion to take from, no doors to knock on, only the declaration by the work of the Holy Spirit already upon him that he was able to declare with a heart of repentance, Lord Jesus. So repentance is the key, and we'll discuss more of that when we get even to Acts chapter 2. And and yes, we'll get into that study as well. So for those who want an outward sign of speaking in tongues, then here it is. With his tongue, he declared, Jesus is Lord. Just as we read in Romans 10.9, and exactly what it tells us to do, this man did. It was audible, understood, and confirmed. You look at Luke 23, 39-43, He reminds us, and Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. So Paul tells us that if a person does not possess the Holy Spirit, he or she does not belong to Christ, according to Romans 8 9. But if you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. So Paul then teaches us that the Holy Spirit is the seal of salvation for all who believe. He says in Ephesians 1, 13 to 14, In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So these passages make it clear that the Holy Spirit is received at the moment of salvation. After all, it was by the Holy Spirit that we even came to Christ in the first place, according to John 6, 44. And remember, you are chosen, according to 1 Peter 2, 9. God knew you before he ever even created Adam. He already knew the choices. Now we can get into that Arminianism and Calvinism discussion. But at the end of the day, God saw the end before the beginning, according to Isaiah 46.10. He knows everybody who will choose him, and Christ's grip is sure. He will not lose one who belongs to him. Now, Paul could not say that we were all baptized by one spirit and all given one spirit to drink if not all the Corinthian believers possessed the same Holy Spirit. Now, Romans 8, 9 is even stronger, stating that if a person does not have the spirit, he does not belong to Christ. Therefore, the possession of the spirit is an identifying factor of the possession of salvation. So the Holy Spirit could not be the seal of salvation, as we just read in Ephesians 1, 13 to 14, if he is not received at the moment of salvation. Therefore, you can't be saved and not have the Holy Spirit. 
In, in fact, the idea of being spiritual, pneumaticos, means that we have the Holy Spirit, and as a result of having the Holy Spirit, we have a spiritual gift, not because of some talent we possessed before the Holy Spirit came into us. Now, certainly we mature as believers. We're conformed to the image of Christ, as we see in Romans chapter 8. Even the Apostle Paul praised Jesus that he was long-suffering with him, meaning the Lord Jesus was patient with the Apostle Paul as he conformed him to his image. So there's no delay in receiving the Holy Spirit from the moment of conversion. That's a promise we need to hold on to. This is why Peter stated to the crowd that they should repent be baptized, and receive the Holy Spirit, according to Acts 2, 38. So receiving the Holy Spirit was not contingent on water baptism. Rather, it was a gift at conversion. Okay, we see in Acts 10, 44-48, that the Holy Spirit was poured out on the Gentiles before they were baptized. We see that even John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit while he was still in the womb, according to Luke 1.15. So water baptism was an outward sign of an inward transformation in obedience to follow Christ. So just as we do with communion, which we partake of in our church at least once a month, the first Sunday of every month, so we're doing that today. So this communion, which we partake of regularly to do in remembrance of Him, it doesn't save us. They're an act of obedience as we remember to whom we belong. It's part of, as we go into baptism, that whole symbolism there is like the betrothal process in a Hebrew wedding where you are committed to another, that we, the church, become the bride of Christ. He is the bridegroom. He has gone to prepare a place for us. And as we partake of water baptism, we are then demonstrating that we belong to another. We're betrothed to another to whom we will be loyal to until the wedding feast with the Lamb. So the theological perspectives of a delayed indwelling of the Holy Spirit were based on the successional outpourings of the Holy Spirit and acts in fulfillment of prophecy, as we see in Joel chapter 2, 28 to 32. So the Holy Spirit was given to the Jews first in Acts chapter 2, 5, which is what Paul confirmed in Romans 1, 16, and then to the Samaritans next in Acts chapter 8, and then to God-fearing Gentiles in Acts chapter 10, 44 to 48, and Acts 19. So that succession and how the Holy Spirit was poured out, many believe that that demonstrates some kind of delay, but that was the exact order that Jesus Christ told them it would be in. In Acts 1, 8, we read, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So, did you catch the order there? To the Jews, the Samaritans, and to the Gentiles, exactly as it all unfolds through the book of Acts. That's why it was intentionally a delay. In the following, this, this as we follow the path of the Holy Spirit, as it was poured out exactly as Jesus Christ said it would be, it doesn't mean that we should derive from that, that there's still a delay today, okay? That was exactly how it was poured out in fulfillment of prophecy, exactly as Jesus Christ said it would happen, and now we have that outpouring upon us today. So it was occurring in the fulfillment of Christ's directives as the Holy Spirit was being poured out to the ends of the earth on every believer in fulfillment of Joel chapter 2. So this the, the figure of drinking of one spirit then recalls John chapter 7, 
which is 37 to 39, where Jesus invited the thirsty to come and drink of him to find refreshment. Let's read that. He says, on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the spirit whom those believing in him would receive for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. That's what we read in John 7, 37 to 39. So there was always a plan to pour out this Holy Spirit. So when certain Christians think they just don't have anything to offer and therefore fail to participate in the life of the church, the body is not complete with that kind of thinking. On the other hand, when some think themselves as God's gift to the church and don't allow others to contribute their gifts again, the body cannot function as it was designed. So if this passage teaches us anything, it teaches us that both inferiority feelings and superiority feelings are out of bounds in Christ's church. Everybody is somebody because we're in this together, because we are the appointed body of Christ, and Jesus Christ is the head of it all. That's what we're to draw from this. So again, we haven't even gotten into this even deeper. We still have verses 14 to 20 to cover to help us under understand why we should not underestimate our importance to the body of Christ, because we so underestimate that constantly. We think we're spectators. You are not a spectator. You're the Ark of the Covenant on two legs, filled with the Holy Spirit to do God's work, to fulfill the calling that He has placed on your life. You are valuable in the eyes of Jesus Christ our Lord. And I want to encourage you to that end. And so if you need more understanding in this, you want to teach others likewise, reach out to us at Calvary Fountain. Again, this is a ministry of Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley Church. I want to thank you for listening to Engage in Truth today. We'll continue in our study of 1 Corinthians 12 next week. God bless you, my friends. We'll talk to you soon.